Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I want to talk about um, I want to talk about evolution today, and uh, evolution in in the Jewish sense, um, meaning to say that the the, the classic uh, Darwinian take on uh, evolution really um, seeks to explain how human beings got to be uh, the way they are right now, but Jewish evolution. Um, really takes up the subject of now that we are who we are now, where are we going? And, and this, um, this, is, this is a phenomenal kind of topic because, because the Jewish view is, is that we are evolving toward something very incredible and that the present state of human beings right now is not kind of like the, the finished product but that this is um, very much an intermediate point toward a, a very uh, exalted um, state of being where we're heading. And um, I would like to tie this in and connect this to uh, the Parsha this week, which was um, Parsha Shmini, which uh, very much relates to this, uh, even though it, on, on the most surface level, it seems to be talking about the finishing of the Mishkan. Um, so, so par- Shmini, the name of the Parsha, means eight. And eight is a very uh, important number in terms of um, Jewish philosophy because it means transcendence. The normal order of things is, is seven, like the seven days of the week, for instance. And there are other sort of um, uh, examples of that. Like on the uh, musical scale, you have seven notes. But when you get to the idea of eight, you get to the idea of what we call Lamala Minateva, which is, which is that which goes beyond the normal natural order. So it's very significant that the, that the Mishkan, the tabernacle in the desert, that prototype of the Beis Migdash of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, was completed on the eighth day. Um, one of the reasons why that's so uh, important is because it was really a conduit from this world to the next world. And not only that, but that it was considered a microcosm of both human beings and the world itself. Meaning to say that the, the blueprint for the, for the microcosm of the world was actually not on a natural level, but on a supernatural level, and for human beings as well. Let me, let me just restate what I just said, because there was a big thought in there, and I think it got buried in a lot of words. <laughs> you see... The Mishkan is a blueprint, not just for the universe. It's not just a microcosm of the universe, but it's a microcosm of the perfected universe. That, that's a very important idea. So, so, not only that, but it's also a microcosm for the human being. And the fact that it's, it was finished on the eighth day is telling us that both this world and the human being are something beyond the natural. In other words, our present state right now is an inkling of who we are and what it is that we're going to be. We're, we're, we're way beyond just our own mortality and, and the limitations that we perceive and that are manifest uh, in the present time. And I'm going to develop this further so you see, you see what I mean. Um, now, let me... Let me take a step back, just, uh, just so that we can build something, and tell you that a, to- a Torah that I heard that, that made a, a tremendous impact on me 
from Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach uh, in the name of the Rishon Rebbe. Um, we know we, we refer to it frequently. There's a, a foundation, a klal, in the Gemara, in the Talmud, that says the following, that when a passage begins with the word vayihi, it portends something negative. When something begins with the word vahaya, it's something positive is going to happen. So, here you have the finishing of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle in the desert, and it says that Hashem was so happy the day that this happened, He rejoiced like the day that He, com- that he created the world. So, so, it was a big, big simcha, big, big happy occasion. Um, so, that being the case, there's something very strange about the way this parsha opens. It opens with the word Vayahi, which is a negative word. It pretends something negative. So, what, why would that be? Now, listen to what the Rishon Rebbe says. Something very amazing. He says that, you know, you know why it was a sad day on some level, on some very profound level? Because what was the role of the Mishkan? The Mishkan was, they, they talk about it as the, a, a dwelling place for Hashem. But that's, that's a little bit of a, of a, of a misnomer. I'm not, I'm not crazy about that phraseology. Because God inhabits the entire world. And, and all the worlds. He's, he's within this world, and he's also beyond, 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 beyond. He's inside time, and he's beyond time. All simultaneously. So the idea of a, a house, or any kind of physical structure, being a dwelling place for God, sort of minimizes um, our concept of God's uh, omnipresence. Nonetheless, it was sort of, so to speak, a touchstone, a headquarters, where his shechina, where his revealed presence was really manifest, like you really can see it. And by the way, just to plant a seed right now, I'm going to build towards something toward the end, but I just want you to hear it right now. Parsha Shmini begins with the letter Shin. And Shin, the rabbis tell us, stands for this concept of Shechina, which is this, the, the, the sort of the manifest uh, presence of God. Like, almost like, you know, it's like really uh, almost on a revealed level. Even though it's formless, obviously. But nonetheless, it's, it's like, wow, there it is. Okay. So, the original Rebbe says, you know something? You know what the sad occasion was? The fact that this dwelling place, that this headquarters, was a building, was a physical structure, because it was supposed to be each and every human being. All of us were supposed to be the Mishkan. All of us were supposed to be that headquarters for the revelation of godliness. You see? So, so now... We say it's the Jewish understanding of, of reality, and, and we say that this is reality, in fact, that we're heading toward that place. It's been sort of a bumpy road to get there, but that is where we're heading. And I saw in this forum one of the great uh, Torah commentators from, from Italy, actually, um, said that we're going... He, he showed how it's going to be in halacha. You know, in general, if you have an idea, um, especially sort of like a very lofty, almost sort of like philosophical idea, that's all well and good. But, but the important thing is to show where that idea exists in the meat and potatoes halacha, in Jewish law, in the here and now. 
Because that's where, so to speak, the idea becomes sort of like concrete in this world. So, where do you see the idea of each human being being a mishkan, being an actual tabernacle? Where do you see that in Jewish law? So, the Sforna says the following, that when the third base of Migdash, when the third holy temple is built, see, let me just give you a, a bit of background so you understand this. You see, before we had... Um, the Beis Hamikdash, the Holy Temple. Um, a person could make what was called a uh, a bama katana. That, that's the, the the Hebrew. What that means is essentially a private altar where you could bring a sacrifice to Hashem. Okay, I mean you couldn't bring it to whoever you wanted to bring it to. It had to be to Hashem, obviously. But you didn't have to go to a central place. You could just make your own private kind of like sacrificial area and, and, and bring whatever the Torah, you know, said you should bring for that occasion. Once there was a base of Migdash, the rule was that there were no more Bamakatanas, no more private altars. You had to go to the central place in order to bring the offering. The Sforno says that when the third base of Migdash comes, there will be a return to Bamakatanas. Meaning to say, because human beings will have spiritually evolved to the place where each one of us will have the status of a mishkan, that this action will be manifest in Jewish law as well. That, and, and as an example of that, each one of us will be sort of like, so to speak, the, the, the lightning rod for where the shekhinah comes down and where you're able to offer that offering. So you will be the center. You will be, you will be, each one of us will be that holy temple. So, so an amazing, an amazing process of evolution. It's, it's, it's interesting because in the Haftorah for Shmini, there's a, uh, a, a very subtle but direct reference to the evolution of human beings that, that, that is going to take place. It says God is going to remove our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Uh, Yechesko, Ezekiel, uh, writes this. Now, it's, it's put in even more, uh, an even more trenchant way, where um, the prophets talk about this orla, which is a kind of like a, a, a fatty deposit, if you will, that is on all of our hearts. All of us have this blockage on our hearts called an orla. And it says that, that in the end of days, that Hashem is going to remove that orla, that blockage on our heart, and we're going to become just way more, way more. You know, we've talked about it before. The, the idea of the central nervous system is as much to process external stimuli um, and, to, and to direct us, to, to provide a conduit from the brain to the rest of the body so that we can think and act and take in information and act on information, it's as much that, and that's sort of like the, the standard understanding of the central nervous system, but as much as that's true, it's also designed to block out stimuli. Because if we were able to remember every face that we saw, I mean, the example that they give is, imagine you ride the subway in New York, and you, you remember every single face all day that you saw, you wouldn't be able to function. So as much as the central nervous system is designed to absorb outside stimuli, it's also there to block out outside stimuli. 
Now that's very important, because when you talk about the removing of the orla from the heart, and the expansiveness that's going to take place into our, in, in terms of our ability to comprehend what's around us, is a very, very exciting thought. Now this year, we're in 2011 right now, they just announced the winner of the Abel Prize. That is basically the Nobel Prize for Mathematics. And uh, it's not called the Nobel Prize, but it's given by the Norwegian king, and uh, the king of Norway, and it also carries with it about a million dollar prize. So that's, 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 that's tantamount to the Nobel Prize. They just, for whatever reason, don't call it that. So th- this year's winner, John Minor, he's a professor at Stony Brook, of the Nobel Prize, uh, or of the Abel Prize for Mathematics, um, is basically, uh, has done a lot of his work um, in terms of showing mathematically how other dimensions beyond the third dimension, you have, like if you draw a circle on a piece of paper, that's two dimensions. Then once you're a human being and you look around the world around you, that's already three dimensions. But he has mathematically proven four dimensions, five dimensions, six dimensions, seven dimensions, eight dimensions. And he's even described to a certain extent the personality of those dimensions. And there's one thing that... um, I just heard a, a, a slight piece on this on, on NPR, uh, if you want to look it up. So I, um, I, I, I literally don't know anything about it, but I'm just telling you the, the two things that I heard. But interesting is, is that if you take one of his math problems or his, his, thought, his thought problems, is that imagine a beach ball covered with hair. Can you smooth it out on every single side so that no hair stands up? So if you kind of just imagine it in your head right now, you're smoothing, smoothing, smoothing. Every time you smooth in one area, there's a certain area that you're not smoothing and that's standing up. So in three dimensions, he says it's impossible to do. You can't smooth it out so that no hair will be standing up. But in four and five and six or seven or eight dimensions, it is possible to do. So he's already describing the character in some, in some way of these dimensions that are around us. So why this is so significant uh, to me as a, uh, as a spiritually inclined person is that you see that physics, not only physics, but mathematics itself is proving unseen dimensions and, and describing them. So, so the idea that when our heart opens up, when this orla is removed from our heart, that we're going to be able to perceive on a much greater level, we know that those dimensions are already there. So the idea that we'll be in touch with them and be able to perceive them is, is, is very exciting and, and makes perfect sense. So, so let's go further. You see, you see, we have a teaching. It's a very mystical teaching, and um, I can relate it to you but again, I, I, I have to tell you, I have to research it much further and, 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 and learn what it actually means. But, but just the, the, the idea itself is so exciting and interesting. So, so let me at least go that far, which is the idea that, that God created many worlds and destroyed them before he created this world. We have this, we have this as a teaching in Judaism. So... Um, so I would like to research this way more, but, but let's just work with this idea for a moment. You see, what did we say? We said that the Mishkan, the tabernacle in the desert, was a microcosm, is a microcosm of the world itself. 
Now, interestingly, it was finished dedicated. It was fully dedicated and operative on the first day of Nisan. And that's, that's significant for a lot of reasons. One of them is that there's a debate in the Talmud when the world was actually created. So we celebrate the creation of the world on the first day of Tishrei, also known as Rosh Hashanah. But there's a very strong opinion in the Talmud that the first day of creation was actually the first day of Nisan. So it's interesting that this um, tabernacle, which is a microcosm of the world, was dedicated on the day that the world was created, according to one opinion in the Talmud. Now, what was the process that Moshe went through before he actually finished and, and dedicated the Mishkan? So for eight days, remember the name of this Parsha is Shmini, right? Beginning with the letter Shin, we're going to get back to that. So, on the eighth day, it was dedicated. And again, this very exciting idea that it's also a miniature of a human being. And eight stands for transcendence. And that's sort of like the finishing of who we are going to be and evolve to. This transcendence state. So, but what did Moshe do before, before the eighth day, or in preparation of the eighth day? Now, remember this teaching, that before God made the, this world, that as we understand it, he created and destroyed many worlds. So, so, what did Moshe do? He put up the Mishkan, and then he took it down. And the next day he put it up, and then he took it down. And the third day he put it up, and then he took it down. And the fourth day he put it up, and then he took it down. On and on till the eighth day when it stayed up. So do you see how this parallels the creation and destroying of worlds before our present world? So, and by the way, these are the days that we're entering into within a few days. Because we're, uh, we're almost eight days before the beginning of the first day of Nisan. So these are the days where Moshe was putting up the Mishkan and taking it down, creating worlds and destroying worlds. So to speak, mirroring Hashem's process of creating the world that we're in right now. So, so now, now I want to say something very deep. Kind of trying to take all of these ideas that we've been discussing up until now and take it now to the next level. You see, you see, many people have a problem with this world. Thinking people, good people, intelligent people, but, but, but people who haven't really learned Torah. Even people who have learned Torah, by the way. But maybe they haven't worked through it. You see, there's a, there are two very, very good questions about God and his existence. One is, if God is good, which we emphatically say in Torah, if God is good, how is it that the world is so messed up? Or, they say, well, or, well, maybe he's good, but he can't control everything. But we also say, very emphatically in Torah, that God is all-powerful. So, that actually compounds the problem and the question which is that if God is good and he's all-powerful, why is the world messed up? It seems like it can't, those two things can't coexist. Unless, unless you give what I suggest is a, is a very simple answer. But I've offered this before in, in previous talks, but now, 
I was thinking about it, and I want to I go deeper within this idea. Which is that, unless you understand the following, and I believe that we can't understand our lives unless we understand this following idea, which is that the world is not finished yet. See, we're still in this stage in a, in a, in a more subtle level, and I'm going to explain this more in a bit, of creating and destroying worlds. We haven't arrived at the final iteration, the final manifestation of what this world is yet. Meaning to say that the world is still in the process of being created. Just like we human beings haven't achieved our end yet and our destiny yet in terms of the exalted state that we're going to be in, so the world itself has also not achieved that. And remember, it makes perfect sense that the fate and destiny of a human being and and the fate and the destiny of the world itself are integrally linked together. Because it says in the Talmud, if you save one person, it's like you've saved the entire world. A person is compared to the world. Okay? And there's a great kind of like parable, which is that, um, which sort of shows this to be true also. Uh, A father is, is reading the newspaper and he's exhausted and his young child wants to play with him. And the father wants to buy some time and he says, look, takes a page from the newspaper and kind of rips it up into uh, a jigsaw puzzle and tells the child, look, put, the, put this map of the world together, which was definitely beyond what the child could do, and then, you know, when you're finished, come and I'll play with you. So he was trying to buy himself some time. And a very short time later, the child comes back and he's completed the entire, the entire map of the world. And the father is astounded and he says, how did you do it so fast? And the boy says, well, on the other side, there was a picture of a person And when I put the person together, the whole world fell into place. So you see it, you see it on that level, Tim. And I'll tell you another example, which is said in the name of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, one of the great rabbis from the from the 1800s, the head of the uh, founder of the Musra movement. And he said when he was when he was young, he thought that the entire world was was chayiv, meaning sort of guilty uh, of not fulfilling their duties. And he himself was not. Because, you know, he was like a tzaddik. He was a kid, but he was kind of doing everything and beyond, right? So he was okay. He said, but the more and more he, he learned, he said, no, no, no. The rest of the world is, is okay. I'm the one who's high. <laughs> because if I were really doing everything that I needed to do, other people would also be doing what they needed to do. So that was his, his own perspective. But again, this idea that each one of us is a, is a mini world unto ourselves. Um, and that to the extent that we can perfect ourselves, there will be a par- parallel perfection within the world. And if we're all striving toward that, then we'll see the great day. So, so let's continue on with this idea. You see, it's, it's this thought that the world is not finished being completed, that our own internal process of not having achieved our final destiny mirrors the destiny of the world itself, it also being in the process of reaching its final completion. 
which is what? Which is Mashiach, which is a world of peace, which is a world where God is openly revealed. Okay? So that's what we're striving toward. Now, now listen to this. It's more than the idea that we're partners with God in terms of completing the world. You know, I once put it this way, which is a lot of us think like, how is it that I got invited to such a bad party, meaning this world? Like, you know, it's like such a drag, you know? But, but then if you think about it, no, the whole point is, you were, it's not that a terrible coincidence you were invited to a bad party. You were invited to make this party great. Like, it's not, it's not two crummy things that just happen to go together. That's why you're here, in order to fix the party and make it a good party. You know, that's, so, so that's, that's again the idea of the individual and the world around us. That's how we have to think about it. Okay, so, so, so but the way I've expressed it up until now is, is this idea that we're partners with God in terms of finishing the world. But I want to say it in a slightly way, and I think perhaps in a deeper way right now. You see, if you, if you think about it, what are our most godlike qualities? And I would suggest that you could really narrow it down to two things, which is um, our ability to speak, that which makes us uniquely human and separates us from animals, and also makes us most godlike, our ability to speak, and also our free choice. Those two things, and, and by the way, the rabbis explain that when we say that we were created in God's image, that, that that's what that means. Just like God has free choice, so we have free choice. And that that's what that means. Okay. So the two most godlike characteristics that we have are speech and also free choice. And I emphasize speech because it says that when God created the world, the way he did it was he spoke the world into creation. Okay. Now let's work with this idea some more. Remember, before God created this world that we know right now, that we're in right now, he destroyed many worlds and created many worlds. Okay. Do you know that when you speak, you create a new reality? You bring a new, a new reality into the world. You know, imagine someone's very sad, right? And then you walk up to them and then you encourage them. And then they're happy. Do you realize that this is now a different world? That the old world, where that person existed, where they were sad, doesn't exist anymore. And through your power of speech, just like God created the world, by speaking it into existence, you have created a new reality and a new world. Not only that, but the old world is destroyed. Do you see how this mirrors God's process of creating the world that we're in right now. The old world is gone. There's now a new world. And just like God spoke the world into existence, you have spoken a new world into existence. Not only that, but by actions, through free choice, by doing one thing and not another thing, now it's a different world. Now this is the world where this has happened. Where that person now has food for Shabbos, say. That world didn't exist moments before. Now it exists. That world is now destroyed. And now there is a new world that you've created through your free choice that now exists. 
So do you see how this process, it's not just that we're partners with God in terms of finishing the world. That's what I've set up until now. What I'm suggesting now, it's a little nuanced, but it's a very big change. We are creating the world with God. We are destroying previous worlds and creating new worlds. This process of destruction and creation is still going on. And we, with our most godlike qualities, we're not God. But God invested us with these abilities, with these godlike abilities to speak and to choose properly and to create worlds around us and to destroy other worlds around us and to evolve toward this magnificent, magnificent state of perfection. That's what we're doing. So now let me tie it back into this this idea of Shmini, of Shin, begins with the letter Shin. Shin represents, we said, it's the first letter of this Parsha where the Mishkan is finished, which is this level of transcendent. Remember, Shmini is eight. And Shin represents the Shekhinah. What makes something miraculous, what made the first base Amigdash so, the first Holy Temple in Jerusalem so miraculous, was the fact that it was a dwelling place for the Shekhinah. And that's this miraculous, all these miraculous things took place because God's presence was revealed. Again, God is formless. He, you can't, you can't, it's not, there's no shape to him. But at the same time, it's this idea that there's just, this extra dimension is manifest within ours. Okay. So this, again, let's just, so this is Parsha Shmini. The dedication of the, of, the, of the Mishkan, this level of transcendence, Shmini being eight, the Shin standing for Shekhinah, and the future of each individual, that each one of us will be a Mishkan, and each one of us will be a dwelling place for the Shekhinah. Okay, now listen to this. You see, the Hebrew letters are so deep. So all these concepts revolve around the letter Shin. Okay? So we have two Shins in Torah. And this is kind of like a a really way out kind of concept, okay? We've talked about it a little bit. We talked about it in terms of the Ramban says in his introduction to Chumash that that the Torah is black fire on white fire. And we just gave a talk on that a few weeks ago. If you want to look it up on Torah on iTunes.com, black fire on white fire. And we've been discussing this. It's, It's a very amazing way of understanding the Torah. So, the two letters, the two versions of the letter Shin that we have, one is in black fire and one is in white fire. Okay? The only one that appears in the Torah itself is the black fire Shin. Okay? Shin, if you, don't, if you can't picture it, is, it's a three-pronged letter. Okay? And it kind of like resting on a single point. So if you can imagine just in your mind, almost like a, 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 a chicken's foot. I don't know how many toes it has, but that, that would be a way of picturing it if you, if, you, if you don't know what a shin looks like. And it's on every mezuzah also. So it's three-pronged, okay? That is, the, that is the shin as we understand it, or what I'll refer to as the black fire shin, right? But now, you have the white fire shin, Okay? The white fire shin has four prongs to it. 
All right. Now I'm going to demonstrate this now with my fingers. And those of you at home, try this. <laughs> try this at home. Make three fingers with your hand, right? Pointing up. That's your shin. Now make with your other hand four fingers. And now interlock it from the top to the bottom. And you'll see how the white fire shin goes right into the black fire shin. Okay? Now, our concept is... Now, where do you see, by the way, if you want to see the existence proof that the four-pronged shin exists, look at your tefillin. Okay? Because the tefillin, tefillin is so way out. There's so much in tefillin. It's really, it's mind-blowing. Um, so, on the tefillin, on one side of the tefillin, is a, uh, of the head tefillin, is a three-pronged shin, and on the other side of the tefillin is a four-pronged shin. So if you want proof of the existence of the four-pronged shin, just look on your tefillin, okay? And so, what's the idea? Black fire represents that which is revealed. White fire represents that which isn't revealed, but is there. Okay? So now, each person... You see, we're going to get to the place where each one of us is that dwelling place for the Shekhinah. Meaning to say, the place that we're evolving toward is that each one of us is going to be that black fire shin, right? Because each one of us is a letter in the Torah. Each one of us is going to be that black fire shin that seamlessly integrates with the white fire shin, which comes down and interlocks with us. Okay, meaning to say each one of us is going to be the vessel and the headquarters of divine flow coming into us in the most exalted way. We, we demonstrate this when we put on tefillin in the here and now because, you know, the way that human beings are made is we're made, God spells out his name, the yud ke vav on our bodies. Our head is the letter Yud. Our trunk, our arms, and our torso is the letter He. Our trunk itself is the Vav. And then our legs are the letter He. And the letter Yud has a little tip to it, which is called, called the Kot Shel Yud which is a whole different aspect of the Yud. When a person puts on their head to fill in, that is acting out this, the tip of the letter Yud. And the idea that there are two shins on it, representing the white fire shin and the black fire shin, is the idea that your mortal intelligence is seamlessly merging with the divine intelligence. Okay? And that is going to be the destiny of all human beings, all of the time, when we become individually the dwelling place of the Shekhinah, Shem should bless us, we should get to that place soon. It's very exciting. Things are really going to (laughs) rock. Have a great week.